fact that we were going to be in chapter 13 this long. We are finally coming to the end of this chapter, and I hope that it's been as much of a blessing for you as it's been for me. I have really enjoyed this chapter. This morning we're looking at the reaction that people had to the gospel in the city of Antioch, Pisidia. And we have a lot to learn from it. Now, uh, in 2015, Pixar released a film called Inside Out. You're anyone familiar with that? Okay. So uh, the story, if you haven't seen the movie, it tells a story about a girl named Riley who goes through a move from Minnesota to California. That's quite the culture shock, as you can imagine. Uh, it's a clever movie because it's told from the perspective of Riley's emotions, which are personified for us as characters living in the control center of Riley's mind. So you've got joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. Uh, Joy is the optimist who is the leader of the pack and tries to make everything just right. Anger, as you can imagine, is the hothead who has to be kept in check. Fear keeps them out of trouble, but he also has a tendency to make things worse than they really are. And disgust uh, keeps Riley from eating broccoli and from making embarrassing decisions. Oh, and then there's also sadness. Well, sadness, as far as joy is concerned, is really just a destructive liability that needs to stay out of the way. So as the story goes on, uh, the move from the Midwest to the city of San Francisco really shakes things up. And the emotions learn some important lessons, especially joy, who learns that there is an important place for sadness. Uh, Joy learns to let go, and the emotions, as the emotions learn to work together, balance gets restored, and Riley matures a bit. Overall, it's a pretty good movie. Uh, I enjoy it, and then I think it has some important life lessons, although it also has some downfalls. One of those downfalls is I think, I think Pixar confuses happiness for joy. Granted, we, we tend to use those two terms pretty interchangeably, but there is a difference. Happiness is one of those things that rises and falls with our circumstances. Happiness is an emotion, but joy, joy runs deeper than our emotional state. There's a spiritual depth to joy, at least true joy, that goes with us into every circumstance regardless of the emotion that we're feeling. It's not that I expect Pixar to be able to convey that in an hour and a half animated movie, but I do think it's helpful for us to make that distinction because joy is part of the inheritance that believers have in Christ. And that's what we want to look at this morning. In John 15, 11, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says to them, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full joy we're told in galatians 5 along with love peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control is the fruit it's something that comes about because of the work of the holy spirit in us joy is the possession of every believer because it is the possession of christ which we share in by the power of His Spirit who abides in all believers. Joy is the substance of 
true obedience, and it is the foundation of true love. Joy, you can think about joy. Joy is the spice, the flavor of the life of a Christian. Part of what it means to be salt and light in a world that is lost in darkness. Now, Satan, on the other hand, is the enemy of true joy. He is fine for you to be caught up in happiness if it will distract you from the authentic joy that comes with knowing and being united with Christ. But when he needs to use something stronger to distract us from that joy, we see he tends to reach for another tool to try and drown that joy out. He reaches for jealousy. And that is what we're looking at this morning in Acts 13. Here, Luke tells us about the sort of reaction that people had in hearing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul, up to this point, has plainly explained to those who were gathered for worship at the synagogue that God kept his salvation promises in Jesus Christ. Paul has shown us how God fulfilled everything that was spoken of Christ in the law and the prophets, how Jesus was crucified as an atoning sacrifice for sin, and how he rose again in victory over sin and death. Now, the good news of what God had done in him was going out to the world, being brought by people like Paul and Barnabas, who were calling people everywhere to salvation by believing in Christ. Some of those who heard the gospel received it. They believed it, and they received great joy, whereas others did not. In fact, we see that they become rather hostile to the gospel, and the reason we will soon see is that they were jealous. So let's get into our passage this morning. If you will, please stand with me once again as we read God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. This is praise be to God for his word. Please be seated. Well, this, this is a sermon 
which is primarily about joy. But we're going to be talking about joy and jealousy. This morning our focus is going to be on the joy that is ours in Christ, but also the enemy of that joy. So what I want to show you from this passage, our, really our main idea this morning, is that Jesus gives us perfect and unshakable joy. The joy which God has given us in Christ is perfect and it is unshakable. Now, as we look at that gift, I also want to warn you about that deadly weapon of jealousy which is aimed at us by the enemy of our souls. So we're going to be looking at these two very opposite things. But what I want you to see in this is that the joy that is in Christ triumphs over the threat of jealousy. So my, my goal this morning and my prayer is that this, what we see here is going to cause you to press into that joy, to hold fast to it, and that you will go from here more joyful than you were when you came in. Now, jealousy, if we think about it, jealousy is, the antith- is really the antithesis of joy. It is to joy what a black hole is to a star. While joy gives life and light to others, Jealousy is an ever-hungry predator that devours and takes, but it is never satisfied. Jealousy poses a deadly threat, not merely because of the way that we see it functioning here, leading people to physically oppose the gospel, but also because of the way it seeks to work its way into the confines of our own hearts in an effort to turn us away from the way of Christ. This, this is a sin that we need to be diligent at all times and in all places to kill in our own hearts or else it will be killing us. And what I want you to see this morning is that this is something that we are able to do, to kill it by the grace of God in the joy of Christ. So I have four points for you this morning um, in which I want to explore the nature of the joy that we have in Jesus. So, first, I want to show you that joy presses in on the grace of God. Second, I want to show you that joy comes by faith. Joy comes by faith. Third, I want to show you that joy resists jealousy. And fourth, I want to show you that joy endures in all circumstances. So, let's begin as we look at the relationship between the grace of God and the joy of Christ and how that causes us to press in on his promises. Now, Paul, we finished Paul's sermon at this point. And as he finished preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, we see that people were really struck with what they had heard. They wanted to hear more. In truth, they had heard everything that they needed to hear to believe, but they were hungry to know more. The service at the synagogue had come to an end, but people were amazed by what they had heard. They they were intrigued. After all, this news mattered. It's not a small thing for Paul to stand up and to declare, God has done everything that he promised our fathers he would do. God's anointed one has come. That is the biggest possible news. It is the biggest possible news to know the name of this Savior is Jesus of Nazareth. For him to declare, there is salvation for you. Believe and have life in his name. In in, in verse 42, Luke says that as people were leaving the synagogue, they were begging that these things might be told to them the next week. Overall, I think that this looks like a pretty 
positive response. Evidently, God is working here in these people's hearts. They weren't turned off to the gospel by the scandal of the cross. They weren't dismissive of Paul when he said that Jesus had not only died, but had risen from the dead. No, they wanted to hear more. They wanted more. And that, that had to be very encouraging for Paul and Barnabas. Now, while, while some were content to go until the next week to hear more, others were not. Luke says that many of the Jews and devout converts followed Paul and Barnabas, who continued to speak to them, and they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, I take it to mean that what Luke is saying here is that these people had become believers, that God had worked in them by his grace so that they had trusted Jesus, just as Paul and Barnabas had urged them to do. Now, Luke doesn't explicitly say that they believed, but he seems to communicate that they had in the way that we see Paul and Barnabas speaking to them. They are urging them to continue in the grace of God. Grace is what Paul and Barnabas had come preaching. And in order to continue in the grace of God, there has to be saving faith. So I, I take it to mean that these were the, really the first believers in Antioch, Pisidia. Now, as we look at the way that Paul and Barnabas treated these people and, and spent more time pouring into them, we can really see their pastoral heart at work. Their work didn't stop with evangelism. Immediately we see that they're here, they're equipping these people, urging them and encouraging them to live in the grace of God. Now, this is what discipleship looks like. And there's something important that I think we need to pick up from their example, which is that there is a calling which rests on all believers to encourage one another to continue in the grace of God, which is why we have our first point this morning, that joy presses in on the grace of God. It lives in it. It applies it. When Jesus sent his church out, he sent them to be witnesses, but he also sent his church out to be disciple makers. What did Jesus say? Go, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus doesn't merely save us from sin. He saves us for life in himself. When we are joined to Christ in faith, we are fundamentally changed. Change. We, we come to embrace his priorities for our own because it's no longer us who are living, but Christ who is living in us. That is what produces the work of faith in us. It's all a work of God's grace. But even as it is a work of grace, we need to understand it is not, we are not holy, we are not passive in this work. In fact, in assembling his people together, Jesus has chosen to use the church as an instrument of his grace, whereby believers work to encourage each other to continue on in faith and obedience. Paul and Barnabas lay a pattern down for us here which is for all believers, teaching us to encourage each other in the constant pursuit of Christ, daily continuing on in the gospel of God's grace. So, if you are a Christian, then God has designed a special purpose for you to play in the life of others. You are a messenger of good news to those who don't know Christ, and to those who do, 
You're a voice of encouragement. Call, who, who has been put in, we've been putting each other's lives to call each other to persevere in the grace of God. By His grace, in His wisdom, for His glory, God has tasked us with this purpose in each other's lives. That's why we come together weekly, and hopefully, hopefully you're coming together outside of this as well, but that's why we come together as a body in the first place. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints affirms the biblical teaching that we cannot lose our salvation, that true believers will, in fact, persevere and press on in faith and obedience. But even as God's sovereign grace assures us of our salvation, God's sovereign grace has also chosen to use us as vessels of grace in each other's lives. You're not ultimately responsible for the decisions that a fellow believer makes. But you do have a given responsibility to be building up others in the love of Christ. We are called to spur one another on in the truth, pointing each other to Jesus, admonishing each other, sharpening each other, bearing with one another, rejoicing together. And as we do, the joy of Christ is made full in our hearts. The greatest joy that I think a Christian can have besides seeing someone come to Christ is to get to see them grow in Christ, pursue Christ, and continue on in the grace of God. As Paul says to the Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It brought Paul joy to see believers living out the grace of God. And it should bring us joy as well. Let me, let me urge you, brothers and sisters, to see and embrace this responsibility that God has given you. Look, look, take a moment, look around at the faces that are sitting, sitting around you. And, and commit to those faces. This is where God has placed you. And He's placed you here for a reason. And part of that reason is to urge the people sitting around you on in the grace of God. As you do, you are going to find that same joy that Paul speaks about. Because as a disciple of Christ, the things that are going to make your heart truly glad are the things that make the heart of Christ glad. So joy presses on and in to the grace of God. It also comes by faith, which is our second point this morning. Now, there's a lot to be encouraged here about the way that people were responding to the gospel in Antioch. News was getting around, and when Saturday came, Luke says that almost the whole city showed up. Now, this is wild, because Antioch, Pisidia, that, that is a very Gentile town. The fact that you have all these people from all different walks of life, all different ethnicities showing up because they want to hear this word is amazing. And we, ex we expect Jews to go to the synagogue and we would expect the people who had believed the gospel to show up. But now Gentiles are flooding in, not, not so much to see or hear Paul, but to hear the word of the Lord. I don't know if anybody was expecting this sort of reaction, but here we are. And this, this is amazing. We need to relish this moment 
Because clearly God is working here. God has stirred up these people's hearts to come. Jesus is being glorified in a pagan city. Okay, so just marvel at that for a moment. Now, unfortunately, this is also when things start to turn sour. We'll get to that in a moment. But before we get there, there, there's something about that moment that we need to zoom in on. Not everyone who came that day and heard the gospel preached believed it. Not everyone who had come to the synagogue the week before and heard Paul preach the first time believed it. And as exciting as it is to see how God is bringing people from all these different walks of life to hear his message of grace and to hear of the glory of King Jesus, we need to remember that no one is saved merely through an, in, through an encounter with the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. The gospel is that message which tells us what Christ has done to save sinners from their sin. But the gospel also demands a response from us. It calls us to trust in Christ, which, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, means that we believe that the gospel is true and that we entrust ourselves to it. And that is important because that is where true joy comes from. It comes from being joined to Christ through faith. It comes as the Holy Spirit, who is the seal and the guarantee of our hope, comes and lives in us, filling us with the benefits of Jesus' work. Let's be clear. Gospel fascination is not the same as gospel faith. People in Jesus, they were fascinated with Jesus, but when his sayings got hard, they abandoned him. Herod, King Herod, was excited when he heard that Jesus was in custody. He was excited to meet him. He had heard amazing things. But when Jesus stood before him, Herod mocked him and cast him into the wind. Some of the Jews who begged Paul and Barnabas to come back the next week to talk more about Jesus changed their minds and ended up doing exactly what Paul warned them from the prophets not to do. The joy of Christ is for those who are joined to Christ. Don't be like those who are eager to talk about God and to discuss the things about Him, but who are in the end unwilling to entrust themselves to Him. I have a friend who I used to work with who loved to philosophize with me. He loved to talk about God. He loved to throw out conundrums and parse through them together in between throwing boxes. But in the end, he always resisted actually acting on what we talked about. There was always an excuse, always a reason that he would say, I don't know, maybe not, maybe. It was like he wanted Jesus, but he wanted Jesus on his own terms. He always kept him at an arm's length. Let's, so understand, reasoning about God is not the same as trusting him. And there is no hope or joy or salvation offered to people who merely know things about God. You actually, in order to have joy and salvation and that, to experience that love, you actually have to know God. And that sort of knowledge is only had through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So the application from seeing this is simply this. Don't sleep on this message. If you don't know the joy of knowing Christ, maybe you know a lot of doctrine, but maybe you have no real experience of his love and his joy. So this passage needs to be a warning for you. Don't be content to know things about God if you don't know him. Don't stop at the threshold of the door of Christ and look in and and say, wow, that looks great, but you know, if I go that way, I'll have to take off my dirty clothes. I'll have to put on other clothes. I just, you know, I like the smell. Don't be content. You can only enter into the joy of the Father when you enter in by faith in His Son. And friends, for those of you who are believers and do know that joy, and I I hope that's all of you, let this cause an urgency to grip your heart. We are not peddlers of a religion. We are telling people where life and joy and peace is found. We benefit nothing from someone else joining the gospel except the joy of seeing someone who is dead in their sin come to life and Christ be exalted. So I guess we do gain a lot, don't we? It's not personal gain. It's about seeing life come to the dead. So let urgency grasp your heart. Let it cause you to want to share this joy, this love, this assurance with others the way that Paul and Barnabas did. Let it move you to take risk for the gospel because it's worth it. And let joy fill you as you get to talk and brag about what Jesus has done for you. That brings us to our third point. Joy resists jealousy. Now this is kind of the heart, really, of our message here. It excites me so much to hear how the city to hear God's word. This is incredible. But for some reason, the Jews, probably specifically the leaders, weren't happy about it. It's actually not a mystery about why they were unhappy. In verse 45, Luke says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. So, One week ago, these people are interested in Paul, in what Paul has to say, but now that the city has shown up, like some kind of revival, it can't be really a revival because none of them are actually, this is not a Christian place. This is is God is stirring people up, and they want to come, and they want to hear God's word, but now they're unhappy. And the reason they're unhappy is because they're envious of what's happening. Now, you might think that as Jews, they may have been upset that Gentiles are trying to get in. Maybe they're displacing some of the Jews. Maybe they, someone, someone didn't quite get to the, the synagogue in time, and now their place is taken up by a filthy Gentile. But that's not what Luke says. No, he says that specifically the reason they're upset is because they are jealous. They're jealous, it seems, because people are coming to hear Paul preach. Now, it's, I don't think it's too hard for us to get in the head, to get into the head of these people to understand why they're upset. Previous to this week, they didn't know Paul from Adam. They'd been here, they'd been doing ministry for years, and then all of a sudden, this, this, this guy shows up, and in the course of a week, people are flocking to hear him. And all this is happening in their synagogue. It wasn't about Jesus for these people. It was about them. 
And so while last week they were happy to hear about Jesus, now things are personal because they're losing, they, they perceive that they are losing control. Now we know from the ending of this chapter that the leaders of the Jewish community had some serious political sway in the city. Perhaps they, like the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, are afraid that they're going to lose their power and their influence. Allowing this to continue would mean that they'd have to, they'd have to die to themselves. They would have to decrease so that Christ could increase. But jealousy wouldn't permit them to do that. And the seed of joy that got planted as the word of the gospel was preached to them, suddenly we see is being snatched up, snatched away, like those seeds that fell on the path in Jesus' parable and were eaten up by the birds. Jealousy is a joy killer. Jealousy is a killer of joy. And it killed the joy of these leaders. Because their joy was not in Jesus, it was in themselves. And so, Luke says that as they saw these things take place, they began to oppose Paul and Barnabas. And not only that, they began to oppose the gospel. Upon seeing the crowd, they were left with a choice. And we see that rather than exalt Jesus as Lord and Savior before the nations, they chose to try and exalt themselves. And they began to contradict what Paul was preaching. Not content to that, we see that they also began to insult him. Uh, the ESV has translated this revile. That's not a word we use too often. The word here is actually blaspheme. So they are slandering Paul. They are opposing the gospel message that he's saying. And they are actively trying to put this to an end. So, as you can imagine, things are getting heated. And they got that way because when the crowd showed up, they couldn't stand the thought of glory going to someone other than them. Now, I hope that if you saw something like this, let's say, imagine this happening in Sheboygan, all right? People who have never had anything to do with God suddenly are being gripped with the word of the Lord and it's being preached and I hope that if you saw that happening you would fall down on your knees and pray that God would work to save those people who were hearing the gospel no matter where it was being preached joy in its being handed out here real joy but because of selfish jealous hearts these people decided to put themselves in the way of the gospel they were doing exactly what Paul warned them not to do. They were doing exactly what we see the rulers in Jerusalem had done to Jesus. Their hearts, it seems very clear, was veiled. their hearts were veiled to the truth. And so they put themselves in the way of the gospel. This, this really is why we cannot afford to sleep on the message of the gospel. When jealousy came in, the fascination that these people had with the gospel became curdled and sour. And jealousy, we see, turned their hearts rancid and hard. Jealous hearts are hard hearts. Jealous hearts will do things that we would not do otherwise. And hard hearts do not beat with the joy of knowing God. Jealousy and bitterness are sour poison. It will, they, will they will cloud judgment and they will blind your eyes to the truth. Satan loves to get our attention off of Christ by putting it on ourselves. And we are all too eager 
too, all too often eager to believe the lie that the glory really should belong to us. It, jealousy will keep you from what God, from rejoicing in what God is doing in and through others. It will sour your perspective of other people. It will lure you in and teach you to justify the pursuit of vainglory. And it will bind you with cords of pride. It will teach you to crave power and influence and positions of importance over and against the glory of Christ. Jealousy is extremely prevalent and serious amongst pastors. Uh, Jared, Jared asked me a question one day while we were running. He said, how do, how do pastors flex on each other? And I told him, humility. Oh, no, brother, you, go ahead. It's, it's pretty easy. You can see that. It, it, it's pretty amazing how, um, how much jealousy will affect pastors because it is difficult to look at what God is doing in another church and not to wish that that was happening here and then to take it personally and to want to push that person out. That's part of, why I have, well, that's part of the reason we pray for other churches because one, I believe that God answers those prayers. And two, because the church is not about us. It's about Christ. We want to see healthy churches in Sheboygan and across the world. And the third reason we pray for other churches is to fight that sense of jealousy that will divide us. I was at a conference with Ellie a couple weeks ago, and we're sitting here, and there's 6,000 plus people all gathered to hear God's word preached. It was fantastic. We were there for almost, I think we were getting like eight hours of preaching a day for three days. It's fantastic. But as you sit there, there is always this temptation to think, man, what would happen if I got to get up there? And to want that when it's not about a person. It's not about a, pers- a person's ministry. is not about that person. It's about Christ. So easily our minds and our eyes stray from him and from his glory onto ourselves. And when it does, we will be at each other's throats. Jealousy is a dangerous enemy and it will steal your joy. It will make you think that you deserve something else. And Christ has called us to empty ourselves so that we may be filled with his joy. The antidote to the poison of jealousy and pride is the cross. The cross of Jesus which is the place of, it's the path of Jesus' own exaltation, is where Jesus emptied himself, humbling himself to the point of death, dying in our place in the most painful, shameful way you can imagine, bearing the awful weight of our sin upon his shoulders. That is the path that Jesus has called his disciples to, the path of the cross. Friends, jealousy will rob you of joy. It will consume you. It will destroy you. You must fight it. You must fight it the way that John the Baptist fought it. As his disciples said, John, the guy that you baptized, all the credit's going to him. People are leaving you and they're going to him. And John said to them, I must decrease that he may increase.
That is how we fight jealousy. We fight it by filling ourselves to the brim with a true love for the glory of Christ over our own. That is what will enable us to praise God as we see him working in the life of someone else or giving them something that maybe you want and to say, praise God. That's his grace. True joy fights and it prevails over jealousy because Christ prevailed over sin. And this is how true joy remains. That's our fourth point this morning. True joy endures. Paul and Barnabas say some really shocking things to the Jewish leaders who oppose them. This is a little painful, okay? Luke says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Why was it necessary? Because salvation is first for the Jews. Because it is from the Jews. This is Paul's pattern, to start in the synagogue before he goes to the Gentiles. Because God's covenant promise was first first for them and then through them to the world. Also, we see that God had a purpose and a plan actually for, for using this hardening to the gospel to bring the gospel to the nations. Romans 11.32 explains that God has in fact consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And we see here how the hardness of heart that was produced by the jealousy of the people who opposed Paul and Barnabas actually produces a softening in the hearts of the Gentiles who were there. So we, we hear Paul and Barnabas say to them, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, we would have hoped that this statement of judgment would have gotten the attention of some of these people, that it would have shaken them awake. But it doesn't seem to have done that. Apparently, they were just too hard to the, to the truth. Meanwhile, joy, we see, takes hold of the Gentiles who were listening to this debate going on. In verse 48, Luke says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So God accomplished his purpose here, even, though, even through the hardness of these hearts which opposed the gospel. As many as were appointed to eternal life, Luke says, believed. God collected his people in spite of the controversy. He brought in his flock. Notice this is the plan of God being executed to bring his people home, even those who were not of the bloodline of Israel. Now there's a lot more we could say about God's sovereignty and how it functions in salvation here. That's really not my focus this morning. That would be another sermon. We're going to continue pressing on in Acts. What I do want you to focus on the as we see this, is just a marvel at the way that God worked in spite of the hardness of people's hearts, even through the hardness of those hearts, to overcome barriers to the gospel and to exalt Jesus as the Savior of the world. That is something to be glad about because you and I are here because of God's commitment to the glory of His Son. Not just that, but we see God actually preserving the joy of His people even in the midst of pressure and persecution which came as a result of this day. Time went on, 
And in verse 49, we're told that the gospel started spreading, not just within the city, but into the regions around as well. And in response, these envious, jealous leaders decided they were, had to do something about it. So that we see they start, they start pressing their political advantage. We're told that they incited the devout women who were of high standing in the city, as well as the leading men of the city, to stir up trouble for Paul and Barnabas. They wanted them gone. And we're told eventually that they did manage to drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. But for all the power of the jealousy of the Jewish leaders, they were not able ultimately to drive away the hope of those who Paul and Barnabas left behind. While Paul and Barnabas pressed on to Iconium, shaking off the dust from their sandals as a pronouncement of judgment against those men who had thrown them out, the new disciples of Christ remained in the city, and Luke says they were filled with sorrow. No, no. They were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Across the scriptures, we always seem to find joy mentioned in the context of God's abiding presence. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21.6 For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. We see Paul praying for the church in Colossae. May you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Even while Paul and Barnabas get run out of town by the political schemes of jealous, wicked men, the faith and the joy of those who heard the gospel and believed it did not fade away. Why? Because the joy of knowing Christ is deeper than any circumstance. The joy of knowing Christ endures. The joy of knowing Christ protects us against jealousy. And the joy of knowing Christ comes from that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us, changing us from one degree of glory to the next, shaping and fashioning us in the likeness of Jesus. I think that we could have expected that in the days that came after Paul and Barnabas were run out of town, the church in the city would have come under serious persecution. Now that the ringleaders are gone, we can focus on rooting them out. But allegiance to Christ was worth it to them. It was worth it because they had Christ. They had his spirit indwelling them, and nothing could possibly change them. Nothing can remove them from the love of God. The joy that was theirs in Christ and which is ours in Christ, is unshakable because it's bigger than our circumstances. It's bigger than moves. It's bigger than losing your job. It's bigger than getting a job. It's bigger than anything you can be happy about or sad about. It's a joy that remains. 
because it's deeper. It's, it comes from that abiding presence that is within us where the Spirit of God rests on us and equips us according to the riches of the love of Christ. So let me charge you this morning, brothers and sisters, not so much to go and try and find joy as to press into it by the grace of God. We receive this joy by faith in the Son and we press on by it in the grace of God for the glory of Christ. So be filled with joy. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to come before you and thank you because we live in a world that is full of waves. And sometimes those waves are pleasant. Sometimes they bob us around and, and, and we enjoy the ride. And sometimes, Father, they shake us to our core. And we thank you, Father, that in Christ we have this enduring flame, this light that comes with the, with the presence of the Holy Spirit whom he has sent upon us and with the promise of the gospel that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Father, we thank you that we don't just know things about you, but that we know you. And we know you because of what Christ has done for us. And I pray, Father, this week we would be a people who are just known for our joy. Father, we don't just pray for our happiness. We pray that you would make us glad in Christ so that whatever faces us this week, people would see and notice that there's a difference. A difference that comes from knowing you and that they would be hungry then to have that for themselves. And that we would be faithful in sharing that message with them. And even as we, we think about our, uh, how we're called to reach the world around us, Father, I pray that you will make us a church that's faithful to one another. Father, open our eyes to ways in which we can help build each other up in this joy, to encourage each other to walk by the grace of Christ, to, to forsake all sin and to pursue all righteousness and to make our hearts glad in knowing and loving you. And I pray, Father, that as we await that day when we will see you face to face, that the joy we have but tasted of in this life would be made full beyond all understanding. And we thank you, Father, for the assurance that we have in Christ that this is what awaits us. And I pray, Father, that we will live our lives in the pursuit of that knowledge and joy, that we will put jealousy and envy and strife to death, and that we will live by the grace that you give. Thank you for Jesus' unshakable joy, Lord. Amen. Well, in